Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interviewer for this episode is Crystal Upperman. Crystal has spent more than a decade working on climate change and public health. She has worked as a senior researcher at the World Resources Institute, led climate adaptation and business development at AECOM, along with stints at the Maryland Department of Health, Georgia Environmental Protection Division, and R&D for BASF. She has a PhD in environmental sciences and a master's in public administration. She's a proud Trinidadian and recently she has joined Aclima as a senior scientist to oversee the company's efforts to integrate public health information and informed risk characterization into their products. Our guest is a thought leader, strategist, policymaker and activist committed to the fight for environmental justice and economic equity. He has worked at the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the US EPA, for 24 years. During his time at the EPA, he also served as the Assistant Associate Administrator for Environmental Justice and Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization. At the EPA, he elevated environmental justice issues and worked across federal agencies to strengthen environmental justice policies, programs and initiatives. In March 2017, he resigned from the EPA to join the Hip Hop Caucus where he led the strategic direction, expansion and operation of their portfolio on climate, environmental justice, economic equality and civic engagement. He currently serves as the Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate and Community Revitalization at the National Wildlife Federation and is also the founder of Revitalization Strategies, a business focused on moving the most vulnerable communities from surviving to thriving. I am excited to welcome our guest Mustafa Santiago Ali. Welcome to the show Mustafa and Crystal. Thank you Shazad. Mustafa, you know, I can recall the inception of my love for environmental science. It was my freshman year of high school with an organization called the New Jersey Environmenters. It was a currently exists as a localized spin-off of a national program that still exists today as Science Mentors 1 to 1. Can you share with us what is a specific moment or experience that sparked your interest in environmental justice? Um, you know, I come out of a family uh, of folks who are focused on workers' rights and and civil rights. Uh, and, and spending time with my father, I remember when we would go different places, and and I would see, you know, how certain communities seemed to have more than just basic amenities. You know, their communities were thriving. Their communities had green space. Their communities mm-hmm. were free from pollution. Their communities didn't have railroad tracks uh, running through them or near them or highways. Um, and as a young child, I remember asking my my father, both internationally and domestically. you know why is this and he began to break down to me you know um how policy can either be a positive or a negative uh how certain communities have been disinvested in um how certain communities uh, are the dumping grounds if you will so you know through those interactions um and also you know participating in, in civil rights and worker rights types of uh opportunities it began to give me a framework for understanding how disproportionate impacts happen um and then i was just super blessed when i was a student that a number of the founding uh, environmental justice leaders took an interest in me and from there it just took off 
Wonderful. That's actually a very exciting inception. And we'll get definitely to some of those particular environmental justice leaders later on. But in, in, in the perspective of like the audience, you know, you've had a long career in what I believe can be characterized as fighting the good fight. What would you deem one of the most pivotal moments of your 26 year career so far? Well, you know, there's so much more work to do. Um, my paradigm is as long as black and brown and lower wealth communities and indigenous communities are getting sick and getting and dying, then none of us have been successful. You know, there have been moments, um, you know, over the years when we've made progress, um, but I, I refuse to lower my expectations for mm -hmm. myself or for those who, you know, are authentic and trying to help to protect our communities. It's being a part of some of the early meetings, I think, was, you know, was one of those positive moments. I remember being at uh, one of the first conferences that Dr. Beverly Wright ever put on uh, in Louisiana um, and hearing firsthand uh, from folks the challenges that they were facing, but also hearing from folks about the strategies and solutions that they'd like to see happen. Um, you know, when we founded the Office of Environmental Justice back in uh, 1992, it was actually then labeled the Office of Environmental Equity because justice was too strong for many people. <laughs> and so, wow. Yeah, there's a lot of stories there I, I could share with folks about the early days. But, you know, that was a pivotal moment. And I like to make sure because there's so many people who play around with revisionist history and false narratives and, you know, um, and, and they don't give the proper people credit. You know, the founding of that office came out of a set of recommendations in the late 80s and early 90s from environmental justice leaders from the Michigan uh, Working Group. Um, and, you know, they are the ones that, you know, I point much of the credit back to because, you know, they had the vision. They had the, the perseverance to continue to fight, to continue to push. And this was a time when it's almost like what we're dealing with with climate change now, where you have people who say that climate change isn't real. Well, they used to say mm -hmm. that environmental injustice, environmental racism uh, wasn't real. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that makes it a very tough situation when someone, <laughs> you're trying to get traction, you're trying to get policies and structure and infrastructure in place. And, and people are telling you that, you know, what folks are experiencing isn't real. So for me, that was one of those pivotal moments when a number of the grant programs that have provided millions of dollars in assistance to communities uh, were put in place in 1993 and 1994. Um, you know, those are um, those are those moments when you know you really begin to have an appreciation and an understanding for what mobilization can do and what it looks like and how mm -hmm. it can, no matter how big an entity is, no matter how defiant an entity is that you can push and make real change happen. Um, so there have been those moments over the years when you see this perfect coming together of frontline communities and leaders, uh, those who are committed uh, in the federal or state, um, you know, whether it's uh, in those agencies or you know, in those state houses or on Capitol Hill, but also you know, seeing real transformation start to happen. Wow. You know, hearing you talk about these stories and reflecting on your early years and just the, the EJ 
momentum that has crossed many decades. I reflect on my life as a Black woman from a Caribbean island, coming from humble beginnings, immigrating to the U.S. as an adolescent, and becoming a naturalized citizen to where I am now in my career. The idea of just social injustice and experiences that I've encountered up to this point shaped who I am. And I learned at a young age to love myself and take pride in my Black Caribbean heritage and also embrace cultural plurality. How does this translate in the context of environmental movements, considering that the environmental justice movement emanated from Black Southern culture? What is your take on that? Well, you know, the beauty of, of what you just shared is culture, right? Um, because it is the anchoring point. It, it is what holds you when you have these incredible forces against you. There is something that's there because you are rooted to the land, because your spirituality is more than uh, a Sunday morning experience uh, of going into a building. It is your connection. It's your connection to the creator. It is your connection to the land. It is your connection to the people. And when you understand the power that culture brings um, and the anchoring point that it is, then it allows you um, to do some phenomenal things in the face of, of great challenges often. And it also just helps you to understand, you know, where you come from. And it gives you that, that strength that, that's so necessary when working on social justice and civil rights issues, um, because the challenges are going to be great. And, and you will find that, you know, there's a difference between a moment and a movement. Um, and, you know, the environmental justice movement is built out of, you know, those impacts that were happening in the South. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the early studies, if you look at what happened in Warren County, North Carolina, which is the flashpoint for the environmental justice movement. But if you understand also that, especially for many people of color, especially African-Americans and Latinx brothers and sisters, many people came from the South and moved across the country. So they took with them uh, those sets of experiences, that culture. And you also understand the challenges of why many people left those locations. And of course, we know that the challenges weren't just in the South, the challenges was all across our country and, and we'll call it out um, because of systemic racism, not only with the impacts, but also with the set of opportunities, it's the dismantling of that. And environmental justice has been a part for over 40 years. I mean, if we're gonna have a real conversation, environmental injustices have been going on uh, since uh, Europeans came to our country, um, of course, with indigenous brothers and sisters and then African slaves. Um, and then as Latinx folks began to move into the country, and of course our Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters as well. Um, so all of that again is rooted back into the fact that um, our culture um, is what we have to always fall back on. Uh, it is also our rallying cry. Wow, well said. Definitely an encouraging drumbeat to have to emanate through and through. In a recent publication by Charles Lee, he recounted a story from Arsenio Mataka. Mataka is the former assistant secretary for environmental justice and tribal affairs at Cal EPA. Arsenio noted that, you know, a story from his youth when he was younger, he went with his parents to the local government meetings and they would always get cast aside or ridiculed. And they were told that they present what they presented was just anecdotal information. They would hear that, you know, this information they presented does not have any science base or that the impacts in their community were no different from others. Therefore, you know, their input was never acknowledged. 
learning this only sort of furthers why I've personally ascribed to the importance of the investment of hard sciences being applied as a basis for systemic change in communities because data cannot be refuted. Can you explain the impact of scientific research and data to the EJ movement? It has been incredibly, incredibly critical uh, to, to anchoring uh, and, and putting the facts in front of folks. And the reason that that has been so necessary, let's go back to the early days of the environmental justice movement. I remember as a student walking down the hallways uh, in EPA, going to one of our first environmental equity meetings at that time. There were two older white gentlemen who were walking in front of me. And of course, back then, I probably looked like I was about 15 years old, so nobody was paying any attention to me. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, And I remember them saying, I don't know why we're going to this meeting, because what these people are sharing um, is not true. Um, And of course, you know, they may even be lying. Now, I want your listeners to understand that these were people who are being paid by your tax dollars, who have a responsibility uh, for protecting human health and the environment. Now, let's let that sink in for a second. If the folks who have a responsibility, who are supposed to be the experts, whether on policy or science or the law, um, have that type of a mentality. You know, if that is their belief system, then how difficult would it be uh, for folks that get any type of traction on the challenges that were going on inside of their communities? So with that being said, you know, many leaders, Charles Lee was one of them, um, Mm -hmm. and I can, you know, give you a laundry list of others, who understood how important the science was uh, and how important the law was um, in in making sure that there was going to be true and full protection of our most vulnerable community. So people, you know, began the journey uh, of being able to uh, implement the proper uh, types of scientific research uh, and analysis to be able to document these impacts that were happening inside of communities. And it was happening on a number of levels. It was happening uh, from HBCUs. It was happening from other academic institutions. It was happening from the GAO. So if you go back and look at some of the early studies uh, Mm -hmm. from 1987 and some of the earlier studies um, that were documenting, you know, many of these impacts that were happening disproportionately in communities of color um, and in lower wealth communities. And of course, Uh, just so that we're clear for everyone, uh, race played a stronger role um, than wealth in in the location or the lack of wealth in these locations. But yes, socioeconomic uh, issues did play a role. Um, So folks just began the journey of making sure um, that these studies were being done, um, that they were, of course, peer reviewed, um, Mm -hmm. and, and that we were putting the facts in front of folks so that then, once you have those facts, we have to then begin to unpack what are the, the processes that have been going on that have put people in greater harm. That's why science is so important. And fast forward to 2020, you know, we now see you know, the assault that has been going on on science. And that's because if you can manipulate science, then you can manipulate policy. Wow. And then, you know, what you speak to also brings in the context of knowing history to know how to shape the science to reverse what history has done uh, and what 
you know, earlier policies have enacted. So that's really, really poignant and pivotal. You know, this story by Arsenio, that experience that he communicated led for him to go on to champion environmental justice screening. What would you say are some of the present day and primary challenges that face disadvantage and potentially environmental justice communities across the United States? Well, I would say, you know, for some groups, it's, it's 400 plus years of systemic racism uh, and racism being built into policy. And, and of course, uh, policy is tied to resources. So one, we have to begin to dismantle um, in each and every one of the policies, because if you truly understand uh, environmental justice, then you understand that we are talking about housing, we're talking about transportation, we're talking about public health, we're talking about jobs and the economy. Um, we're also talking about the environment. We're talking about education um, and a number of other issues, um, but also opportunities. And if you unpack the development um, of the various laws and statutes that are out there, you know, I was having a conversation just the other day with someone about this. You know, when many of our environmental laws were put in place, we probably had a pretty good understanding that there were communities that, you know, the, the various laws and statutes were not going to fully protect. And at that time, I guess there was just more work that needed to be done, but we should have put in place language that would have made sure that the communities that we now label as sacrifice zones or, or the dumping grounds or all the other labels that help to illuminate the challenges that folks are facing, you know, that should have been better built into that. If you look at our laws around education and housing and transportation, we know, um, I mean, it, it is a historical fact that the disparities that exist in that space uh, and mm -hmm. how they have helped to disinvest in these communities, how our transportation routes um, have been used to garner wealth for certain communities mm -hmm. uh, and to dump off pollution into other communities. If we look at education, we know everything from, you know, the disparities that have existed. There have been Supreme Court cases, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus the mm -hmm. Board of Education, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. forth and so on. That speaks to the fact that we continue to have separate and unequal communities across our country. Let me say that again for our listeners, separate and unequal because that is what we are currently experiencing, and that is what we have experienced for the last 400 years. But we now have an opportunity to actually change those dynamics uh, if we decide that we want to prioritize these communities. If we don't, then we will continue to weaken our country um, because a vast majority of people will never be able to appreciate the fullness of what democracy is supposed to represent and the opportunities that are supposed to come with a fully functioning democracy. Yeah, that's powerful. And you know, even even if there there is a want and a need and a will to to change, you know, this will require communities to engage in advocacy. How should communities go about advocating for change in this space? Well, there are a number of things. Um, and I don't think communities have the responsibility for this by themselves. I mean, of course, coming out of the environmental justice movement we always say and are anchored in the fact that communities speak for themselves. They know the dynamics that are happening inside of their communities. They know the impacts, but they also know what they want their communities to look like. So one, we have to make sure the resources are going to those communities, those frontline organizations who are there 24 seven, 
which is an important concept for us to think about. You know, we have a lot of people who like to parachute into communities. We have a lot of folks who like to do drive-bys, come by, take some pictures, and then they're mm -hmm. off again. The communities are there, um, you know, so they're dealing with these issues. The other thing is to make sure that communities understand the power of their vote um, and, and, and how that can be transformational. Um, and, and focusing on the local and the county and the state level, and then of course on, on federal elections, of making sure that there are people who are there who represent uh, what your needs are and that they're meeting them and that there's accountability in that process. We also have to make sure that communities um, have the resources and the tools that are necessary to fully participate uh, in, in policy development. You know, lots of times folks will frame out a policy suggestion or movement without having communities fully engaged in that process very early on. And, you know, it's for expediency sometimes, uh, or sometimes folks just don't want to have to do the tough work mm -hmm. of working with uh, lots of different people um, to make mm -hmm. sure that they, we have the best product possible so people will fast track stuff. Um, and so we have to make sure that communities have all these tools that they need to be able to, to fully participate in the process. Yeah, and you know, that's definitely essential, essential in terms of identifying tools and capacity building to support just the sheer determination to correct what's been wronged. You know, in the, in the context of, yes, environmental pollution, we can go across a myriad of media, um, but we can't forget about, you know, all of this is continuously happening in the context of like the 500-pound gorilla climate change. So from my perspective, you know, air pollution is the main culprit of climate change. I currently work for Act a company that was founded by Davida Herzl on the premise of making air pollution visible. Can you share with us how air pollution has impacted disadvantaged and potential environmental justice communities across the U.S. and the additional burden these communities will have to endure in changing, you know, addressing the way that they live, work, play, exist due to climate change? Most definitely. And, and, we'll, and let's, let's tie what's going on in our communities to the broader climate movement, if you will. Mm. So, you know, it's real simple. Sometimes, you know, and I work with incredible scientists all across the planet, super smart folks. Um, but my thing is, if you can't have a conversation with Mrs. Ramirez or Mr. Johnson about what's going on, um, then we're missing um, the, the, the real connection that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So let's, in the United States, we know that we've got 100,000 plus people who are dying prematurely from air pollution every year. If we start there, those are very similar numbers to what we are currently experiencing with the coronavirus or COVID-19. You know, we've got 137,000 plus people who've died from that. Um, and we've got 100 plus thousand people who are dying every year from air pollution. That's more folks that are dying from air pollution than are dying from gun violence. That's more mm -hmm. folks who are dying from air pollution than are dying from car crashes. Mm -hmm. um, and we can go down the laundry list of all these other things that are super incredibly important and more people are dying from air pollution. And we know that disproportionately, um, the fossil fuel facilities that are pumping out many of these toxins uh, into people's lungs are located in communities of color. They're located in lower wealth communities and they're located on indigenous land. We know in our country, we've got 24 million people who um, have asthma and that number continues to increase and we've got 7 million kids and primarily it's African-American and Latinx um, who are the ones who are going to the emergency room and the ones who are losing their lives prematurely. But let's also focus on the fact 
that if we know where these communities are who are dealing with these disproportionate impacts from pollution, and they're dealing with that on a daily basis, we also know that that's that same fossil fuel pollution that is warming up our planet and our oceans. So why haven't we been laser focused on stopping these impacts that are going on inside of these black and brown communities? And that is something that we have to put the mirror up to for those who work in the conservation space and the climate space and the environmental space to ask the question, why weren't we more focused on these communities? Now, yes, now in this moment, there is the attention, there is the focus, there is a number of people who are moving forward, but you know, you got to be real about that. We know that one of the other drivers you know, in climate change is our transportation uses. And then going back to our earlier conversation, we know that transportation routes have been used to break up black and brown communities, uh, drop that pollution off, as we mentioned before. And now, yes, we are beginning to focus on getting people to move toward cleaner uh, forms of transportation. Um, But traditionally, you know, you had these roads Uh, with diesel trucks and cars and at one time lead coming out of them, you know, that were running by, uh, you know, black and brown schools, by daycare centers, by these houses of worship, so forth and so on. And that's another driver, of course, in in the climate conversation. Let's continue down the road. So we also know that agricultural practices and deforestation are another one of the drivers in, in the climate emergency that we find ourselves in. So we know in those forests, um, in the jungles, uh, in many of these other areas, there have been black and brown people who have been defending them for millennia um, or generations at a minimum. And, you know, so when we do not focus on environmental injustices, I often say that it's impossible for us to win on climate change if we're not willing to deal with these impacts that are going on. Because, you know, not only are we dealing with the warming up of our planet, but we're also dealing with these chronic medical conditions um, that people are getting um, because of their exposures, which then drives up our health care costs. When our health care costs go up, um, and, you know, that is a huge part of our budget, then that makes it more difficult for the other resources that are necessary um, to really shore up our social safety net, if you will. And now in this 2020 COVID-19 moment, we also know that if you have chronic medical conditions, that it makes you more vulnerable to COVID-19, both in infections and in deaths. And there are also studies out there that have shown that particulate matter, also that the virus can live on that. And there are some studies that say that it can be transported on that. So if we know that, then we should be laser focused on protecting these communities that are the ones where you know, much of this pollution that is tied to COVID-19, that is tied to um, these healthcare problems, that is tied to also the stripping away of wealth inside of these communities, then we should be focused in, in that area. Yeah, and it's encouraging to hear you say that for someone who's been in the climate and health space also for a duration of time. I myself have been advocating for that same premise along the lines of we need to invest more in protecting human health because that is the the engine and the base for, you know, generating GDP is 
worker productivity and the increased lifespan of your population. Um, and that's if that is not a economic sort of incentive, aside from the, the it's the right thing to do, you know, we definitely need to take a lens there and that direction. So, you know, you've spent much of your career at the United States Environmental Protection Agency or EPA as those who are in the States colloquially know it as. Um, it's a federal agency that has been well-respected amount environmentalist. In fact, I was an EPA star fellow while doing my PhD. So Thank you, EPA, for that. What was it like doing environmental justice in a government agency? Well, you know, I was really blessed that I came in right at the beginning. So, um, you know, Dr. Clarice Gaylord was our first director of the Office of Environmental Equity, and we were very uh, connected uh, to communities. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's always funny when people, you know, that they told the history, my history, you know, which is just one teeny tiny part because there's so many incredible people. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the majority, a lot of my time was actually spent out in communities. And you know, I think that made me much more effective uh, in understanding. It wasn't like, you know, someone from a, a policy think tank or something was saying, mm -hmm. well, this is what's needed. No, I was sitting down on people's back porches and in their kitchens and, you know, um, and, and in their spaces. Um, so, it was it was great in the sense of being surrounded by so many committed folks there in the Office of Environmental Equity and mm -hmm. being a young person, having the um, the space to learn um, and to make mistakes and, and to get pulled up, you know, picked back up whenever, you, you know, you might have stubbed your toe or made a mistake. So I'm always thankful for that experience. When you branch out beyond the Office of Environmental Equity um, in the early days, that's where it got really challenging. Um, in the sense that, you know, trying to open doors, uh, trying to shift paradigms, um, because, you know, many federal agencies, especially at that time, and there has been an evolution since then, there's still a lot of work that needs to happen. You know, they were not real open entities um, in the sense of making sure that their processes were meeting the needs of communities and, and making sure that you know, the voices of vulnerable communities were a driver um, in the molding of, of things. Um, uh, and, you know, when you're in those types of situations, you got to get real creative uh, in how you uh, navigate and, and how you help to reach the goals that communities are asking you for. So, you know, it was a challenging time for many, many years. Um, as we said earlier, getting science in place, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. helping to ground truth and document um, what was going on in communities, building the infrastructure and frameworks that were going to be necessary um, for us to start to make progress, uh, helping people to understand that some of the laws and statutes, you mm -hmm. know, had some real big holes in them. Um, and and how, do we, how do we fill those holes? It was a blessing. Uh, but it was also challenging. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of segues a little bit because, you know, you spoke a lot about some of the systemic and institutional racism that needs to be dismantled. And, you know, much of the work that you did in the environmental justice movement and continue to do requires the dismantling of that, in fact. And not everyone agrees with that premise at all. Like, we're not going to find everyone that agrees with it. Um, yes, there's been a change in, you know, the pulse of, this, of the general public present day, but, you know, it's not, that's not always been the case. Can you just, can you recount for us some moments where, you know, doing your work 
moving the initiative and the needle of environmental justice was easier or more challenging during your time at EPA? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, every day, um, you know, there, there were challenges, but, you know, we were really blessed that we had folks who were playing chess and not checkers um, mm. and, and understanding that, you know, these challenges were going to be there. You know, we had an inside outside game many times, you know, when something was being proposed or needing mm -hmm. to be developed, there was the push that was happening from the outside. This was in the days when environmental justice leaders uh, would protest outside of EPA headquarters or regional offices. Um, wow. Yeah, so that was really powerful. You know, you would come to work and you would hear, you know, there's going to be this happening, you know, at this time and people scrambling around and, and watching how powerful um, it is when, when people engage um, mm -hmm. and put you on blast, as they should, if you're not doing the right thing. So, you know, in the creation of many of the grant programs, you know, there were those who would often say, well, the resources don't exist. And, and we would have to go out and, and, and work with folks to, to make those resources exist. You know, there were, mm -hmm. you know, great folks on the Hill, John Lewis and others, you know, who would push um, to help to make, you know, make sure that the resources were there, you know. Uh, Congressman Lewis. Yeah, he's incredible. He's incredible. Um, you know, well, he used to always say, and people now speak about it today, you know, getting into good trouble. Well, yeah. you know, good, good trouble was knowing that what you're doing is anchored in the fact that you're trying to help folks um, and, and you're trying to make their lives better. You know, over the years, you know, um, you know, one of those moments was also around the interagency working group and executive order 12898 that President Clinton signed known as the Environmental Justice Executive Order. There were, you know, those who did not think that that was necessary at the time. Hmm. But if you understand the dynamics in communities, you need all these federal agencies, one, being accountable, but two, uh, leveraging their resources and expertise um, to help the communities to heal and, and to be able to move forward. You know, the, there were a number of challenging moments that were there, but that's okay because it was not, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't expected. It was a different time, um, but it was a necessary time to get us to where we are today. Wow, that's beautiful. So, you know, also at the EPA, you led the Interagency Working Group on Environmental Justice. For our audience members, you know, this interagency working group comprised of about 17 federal agencies and White House offices, all focused on implementing holistic strategies to address the issues facing vulnerable communities. Even now, collaboration has been at the heart of your mission. Can you give us a couple of examples from your career where collaboration helped overcome an EJ-related challenge? If we're going to win on these issues, then you have to have authentic collaborative partnerships, and you got to be able to bring a whole bunch of different types of folks together. So, you know, in relationship to the interagency working group, that is the, the paradigm that whatever administration is in place, whoever the next president is, if they're serious about strengthening our country uh, and our planet, you, you've got to have that in place um, because, you know, with shrinking budgets and all the other things that, that folks will sometimes point out, you know, if you can get a number of folks together, then you'll have the leverage that's necessary to make real change happen. And we've seen it play out in so many communities. And unfortunately, and y'all, I, I just believe in real talk. 
sometimes you can have some of the most successful projects, but if they are black and brown projects, or maybe even lower wealth white community projects, then they just don't get the national attention. Even if they are so transformational that you're like, how is it that everybody is not taking a look at this and saying to themselves, how do I do this in my community? Mm. So one of the examples is Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, the Regenesis Project that's there. That is a community that got a $20,000 environmental justice small grant. Um, you know, one of those grant programs that, uh, unfortunately, the, the current administration um, talked about eliminating a number of times uh, when they put forward their budget. Um, but that's for another conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that $20,000 grant, they were leveraged, able to leverage it in $300 million in changes. This was a community um, that had lack of jobs, that had bad transportation routes, that had old shotgun housing. Uh, some of the listeners will know that, but just, you know, a couple of rooms, terrible insulation, you know, a number of different things that uh, needed to be addressed. They had, you know, lack of a, a location where seniors and young people could get together um, and a number of different dynamics. They had brownfields and Superfund sites. You know, through that grant and a lot of other resources that came through a collaborative model, uh, one of them was the um, CPS um, program that that exists Mm -hmm. at EPA, they were able to now get, you know, 500 new green homes. And those green homes mean that where people were paying three to $400 a month for their electricity costs is now down to $67 a month. Mm -hmm. We were able to clean up the brownfields and Superfund sites. We were able to get new transportation routes where before there was one way in and one way out of this community and there was a railroad track and the and the train used to come and sit there and idle. Um, and if there was an explosion at one of the plants, the people were trapped. Um, so we were able to get new transportation routes, able to get a new 60,000 square foot community center where elders and young people come together uh, for training uh, and for recreation and all the other things that are important. Uh, worker training programs were put in place. So it was the community that was rebuilding its own community and at the same time garnering new skills and creating their own businesses. They had food desert issues, got a supermarket in, and then other businesses began to build around that in an area where people said um, that could never happen. Um, and got five healthcare centers in an area where seniors used to have to travel almost a half an hour on a bus to get to healthcare, which is also creating jobs. Um, and at the same time, um, addressing the healthcare needs of folks inside the community. And all that came, you know, from these authentic collaborative partnerships where you had business and industry coming to the table, where there used to be an adversarial relationship. You know, over time, there actually has been built a friendship um, between uh, the communities uh, and business and industry. You had state and local governments engaged. Um, You had foundations, you had HBCUs doing research um, to help to quantify what some of the needs were and some of the impacts that were going on. So you had all these different folks coming together um, Mm -hmm. to make real change happen. You can look at the Ivanhoe community in Kansas City run by Miss Margaret May, um, where they used to have crack houses and now they have new development that's happening where they didn't have green space and now they have park space and others. Um, and, and a number of other dynamics that are going on there. You can look at Bethel New Life, which is a faith-based example uh, in Chicago, or the work of uh, Reverend Floyd Flake in Jamaica, Queens, um, or the work of Reverend Buster Soares uh, in Jersey City. 
All of these are collaborative projects that are bringing lots of different folks together and addressing the needs that communities say are important to them um, mm. and that communities are driving. And if there's one thing that I'll share with our listeners is that there are two different paradigms. There's a paradigm, which is sort of the 20th century paradigm, where a county or the city is the driver, where they are the central point, um, and then everybody else is sort of an add-on. We operate from a paradigm where the community is the center, and then everybody else is coming as authentic partners, um, which changes everything. Um, because the, the communities get to make the decisions about what their communities are going to look like and what are going to be the priorities. And that is a 21st century paradigm that we have to get to. Wow, I should have known asking that question, you would have came in with the receipts, man. The litany, the list of examples, you know, there are prototypes out there to follow and it's great, but there's still so much work to do at this point also. This episode was the first half of the conversation between our guest Mustafa Santiago Ali and our interviewer Crystal Upperman. Stay tuned for our next episode to hear about Mustafa's journey after the EPA, his ongoing and upcoming ventures, and the common links between the environmental justice fights in the US and the rest of the world. I would like to thank Mustafa and Crystal for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.